Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, an exclusive interview with the organiser of the drug rehab linked to the mongrel mob. Jacinda seems to trust me. Why wouldn't you? The police minister will respond and will ask about a week of high-profile shootings and gun crimes. Then, Kiwis around the world still dealing with COVID-19 death. On Monday, I just buried a friend, a doctor of psychology who we've been working with last year. So here it's serious. It's really serious. Shootings, meth busts and the 501s. Gangs have long been the subject of political debate. The latest flashpoint concerns $2.75 million in funding for a drug rehab program for gang members in Hawke's Bay. When the Kahukura Rehabilitation Programme was trialled in Hawke's Bay last year, TVNZ's Te Karere was there. Based at a Waipawa marae, patched gang members were supported to kick methamphetamine. This programme is based on a programme that, has been, uh, that was run uh, back in 2010 as part of the then National Government's Methamphetamine Action Plan. Uh, and uh, it is very much focused on trying to address meth addiction and the crime that often results from meth addiction. But is it smart to spend the proceeds of crime funding drug treatment for the perpetrators of crime? $2.75 million for the mongrel mob when they could have given the Salvation Army as we did to work with uh, people who wanted to get off pee. They didn't do that, they gave it to the mongrel mob. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. The Kahukura programme is a 10-week course with eight weeks of live-in support and two weeks of intensive reintegration. The government claims last year's pilot programme had high compliance with court orders. It's supported by the Ministries of Health, Corrections and Social Development, plus the local Hawke's Bay Police, although the Police Association strongly opposes the scheme. New Zealand has a gang problem. There's been a 50% increase in gang membership. The number one issue that New Zealanders are telling me is that there is a gang problem out there which needs to be fixed, and this government is being far too soft. Now, one group we haven't heard from is the directors in charge of the company that actually runs Kahukura. One of them is Harry Tam, an honorary life member of the mongrel mob who's also spent years working in the public sector. Now, we want to be 100% transparent. Harry Tam would only agree to this interview on the understanding he would not answer questions about the mechanics of the Kahukura, Kahukura programme itself. He says this is because of where the funding process is at. But as you'll see, he does address the central criticisms of it. And I started on the broader issue by asking Harry Tam why the government says gang numbers have increased by as much as 50% in the last four years. Well, there's a couple of things with, with um, increasing gang numbers. First and foremost, how accurate are those numbers? And I mean, I think in past, you know, people like Jared Gilbert have uh, interrogated some of those numbers and they aren't always accurate. So, you know, I'll put that up first and foremost. I think the, my observations, um, the people that are coming into to the gangs are pretty much sort of like third generation, you know, and, and you kind of got to look at what are the drivers behind that. And I, and I think there's a direct correlation with, with the growth and disparities, particularly with Māori and non-Māori. And I mean, if you take a look at the sort of Māori median wage, I think it's around about 24,000 and your non-Māori is about 34,000. And, and 
really those communities, they're not unemployed, they're jobless. They're, they've stopped actively looking for work because, one, they're actually unskilled, um, so they'll come into unskilled employment or, or semi-skilled employment, and the returns are relatively low. Like your minimum wage has just got up $20 an hour, which is good, it's a step in the right, different right direction. But you've had 30 years of this low wage, low skill economy, and these people, you know, have been brought up with intergenerational dysfunction. Um, you only have to have a look at what's coming out of the Royal Commission of Inquiry. You know, where did the, where did the sort of gangs originate from in New Zealand? You know, as the people that have been in state care and, and have been abused, and their traumas have never been dealt with. And so it's an intergenerational transfer of trauma and dysfunction. So by the time you get to your third generation, that not working and all that, that's the norm, yeah? And not having fathers around, that's the norm. And so people are disconnected from their, their culture, they're disconnected from their, their whakapapa and all those things. And then they see a group that, that lives in what they perceive as a family and the closeness and, and people that don't judge them um, it becomes an attractive alternative. Um, if gang numbers are increasing, what role are the returning 501s have? It's an interesting question. I mean, like, put it this way, for the 501s that come back, I mean, there's no porphyry for them, is there? I mean, these are the people that have been so disconnected from their own whānau. They've been living over Oz or wherever, right? And then all of a sudden, you're sent back somewhere, you get met at the airport by two detectives and you walk away with $300 and I don't think they even say good luck to them. Um, so I think there's, um, we do need to look at how we, we, you know, like I was talking to Nahiwi the other day, maybe maybe we need to get Iwi involved in that to, to help reconnect them with their, their hapu and their whānau. Um, so, so they don't have to go to the gang, you know, um, particularly like if you haven't got an identity, you can't apply for benefit, you can't apply for benefit support. Now, if you haven't got a, an address that you can say, you know, my power bill went to this address, how, how do you get help? So these people will no doubt, you know, go back to others that, that they know of. And so, you know, so I think, um, but overall, I think the... The 501 sort of thing has probably played up more than what it really is. But I think what we're not looking at is the causes of them getting into, into crime as a means of, of um, support for themselves. You know. As a lifetime honorary member of the Mangal Mob, how effective has the gun ban been when it comes to getting guns out of the hands of gangs? I think the thing, first and foremost, the guns are generally illegal. right? And the other thing is that I think we really need to be asking ourselves, why are people going around with guns? Because I think if we don't understand that, then you can ban guns, but it's not necessarily going to change a hell of a lot. You know, my view is that people feel insecure, either through their lifestyle, because they've got other things going on with other, other groups that, that they feel that they need to protect themselves with, or they're involved in selling drugs or something and they can't go to the police if they get ripped off. Now, if we understand those things, for example, like if, if there's 
rivalry between gangs, well, let's try and resolve the rivalry because then you start taking away their need to carry guns. You know, if it's, a, if it's about drugs, well, look, how do we get them out of um, drugs? You know, like, I mean, I think the thing is that a lot of the people that they're selling to are actually their own. It's almost like brother killing brother. Now, if our whole strategy is around, you know, cutting off supply, that'll work so far. What we, what we need to focus on is also reducing demand because if we can reduce it, I mean, this is just market theory, isn't it? You know, supply and demand. If you reduce the demand side, you, you, you know, there's this need for supply. And I think a lot of our strategies have been focused on reducing supply, which I don't disagree with, but we also need a balanced approach. And I think if we understand those dynamics that are happening within the gang communities, then we're set on, on, on the path of making a difference. So what role does methamphetamine play in financing gangs? Well, I don't know how much they finance gangs as such. I think they're individuals. At least in my time being involved in gangs, um, it's more of an individual operation. Now, that, I can't say that for every gang because I don't know. How else right? do gangs get money, though? I don't know. I mean, some go to work, you know. Um, but, and... and and I've seen in recent times a lot of the mob guys have actually gone to work, you know, the older guys. Um, but yeah, it may well be meth, but again, like I say, unless you actually deal with the problem in itself. I mean, for me, is that we, we, we focus a lot at the top end of, of the meth thing, right? The big bus. And, and we kind of feel, geez, that's another couple of million dollars, you know, and we feel good about it. But I remember seeing a... Um, a situation here in Wellington, right, where the police, you know, came out in the court case, they, they were watching these these two mob guys for a year. And over that year, I think um, over $2 million of meth had gone through that, that meth house. Yeah. And, and it made me really question, is this the, the right approach? Because over that year, we allowed $2 million worth of damage to our community before we got it. And, and it just sort of seems to me that we're so fixated on the big bus rather than, for God's sake, just have a, have a cop car outside the meth house with a cardboard cut-out cop, if you like, um, because it's highly unlikely the people are going to sell there when there's a cop car there. It's highly unlikely the buyers are going to buy there, right? Have some more drug courts in the community. So these people, because often my understanding is that people get into selling meth initially to support their own habit. Then they realise they can make quick money and big money. And then they go on and on, and so then they become big suppliers. Well, right? I want to pick up on something you said. You said it's brother dealing to brother. So how much is addiction a problem in modern gangs? It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. I mean, you only have to look at the mental health issues, the number of people that are going to prison, it's a huge problem. What is the best way to give assistance to people who are addicted to drugs in a gang setting? A lot of our people don't trust people. You know, there's this whole thing of tr trust. And if, and if you look into their backgrounds, they've got good reasons not to trust authority. A lot of these people have been institutionalised most of their lives. And, and I think these are some of the stuff that are coming to the surface now where you see children being plucked out of families through Oranga Tamariki, they go into institutions, they get beaten up, they get abused, 
so they become really untrustworthy, right? So when you say you need rehab, go here, go here, they don't know those people, they're not them. You know, like in our world, this whole thing about walk the talk is really important because without that trust, it doesn't work. So I think that's one of the things that we're trying to break some of those barriers down from some of the work that we do, is to actually engage and influence our people to actually want to make change, right? So I always talk about the need to penetrate because we often assume that, you know, you can just rock on up and say, hey, bro, I want to put you through rehab and I'll be piss off, you know. But if it's somebody that they can trust that comes in there and have the conversations, and you'd be amazed what comes out. People want change, but they don't know how to change. Why should we give any sort of assistance to people who have made an active and conscious decision not to participate in society? Well, I think the thing is, who is we? Is we, does that include OT? Does we include the abusers? Does, it, does we include the pedophiles? that have abused these people? Does it include the we's as in Lake Ellis? Are they the we's? We as law-abiding, tax-paying citizens. Well, they are too. Law-abiding? Come on, Harry. No. Your leaks. You know, the stuff that has come out of the Royal Commission Inquiry, they were law-abiding citizens. They were employed by the state. So that is we. Right? So let's, let's be clear about who we is. My question is, what, why should society as at, at large support people who've chosen not to be a part of society and, and, and made that a conscious decision? I think, I think that's not a valid question because, you, again, you're forgetting the backstory of why they have opted out. They haven't opted out. They've been pushed out. Yeah? If you're locked up in an institution and your carer is beating the crap out of you, did you choose that? I wonder, how, how, how does anyone, be it, be it mobsters, bureaucrats, journalists, know where your loyalty lies? Well, I think my loyalty lies in, in being a good New Zealander. I think that's why they gave me a medal. I can, I can show you. Services to the country. Do you carry this around with you everywhere? No, I just thought I'd show you, <laughs> just in case for the non-believers. The New Zealand 1990 Commemoration Medal. You get my question, though? Well, it seems like the, the, the Jacinda seems to trust me. Why wouldn't you? See, that's because, the, because see, that's where the problem is. You see, it doesn't matter what I do, because I've had that label, you're not going to trust me. And that's the thing. You see, when these guys... We, we demonise them, right? And we've got reason to hate them, but when they try to do something for themselves, we're going to bash them again anyway. We're going to demonise them. They can't win. And the, I think therein lies your answer. It doesn't matter what I do, right? It doesn't matter what references I've got. You're still going to look at me as like, he's one of them. So, so the thing is, you know, how are we going to make a difference? You know, on one hand, we're concerned about the rising numbers, we're concerned about gun crime, we're concerned about meth and all the rest of it. And we're going to do the same thing again and again and again, right? And you only have to look at the stats. And I always talk about the estimates of gang numbers in 1981 at the time of the report of the Committee on Gangs. 
And if you go and have a look at the ministerial inquiry into violence, the Roper report, and see what the estimated numbers of gang members were then, there was actually a reduction. And it's the only period in the history of New Zealand where there was actually a reduction in gang numbers. So what happened between 81 and 87? Yeah, Muldoon. He actively looked for solutions, employed people like myself to go out there and engage those communities and get them into work, get them into education, get them into training. But we don't want to look at that because we want to demonise them, we want to demonise Muldoon because he was close to gangs, you know? And that's, that's the problem, is that we can't stop ourselves looking at the facts and looking at the data. We just want to demonise people because we've got the society where it's all about who is worthy and who is not. And it doesn't matter what we do to someone, they're still not worthy. Yeah? You know, we've had this Royal Commission of Inquiry going on for the last couple of years, and the truth is starting to come out, but they're not worthy. They're not us, yeah? in your own words. So as long as we've got a society for us and them, and we use this judgment tool of who is deserving and who is not, these problems will continue. And we never look at what underpins these problems we never get to try and understand the problem. But right now, and for the last 30 years, literally, we've had this, this model of suppression, which is known as suppression, which is purely surveillance and law enforcement. And what have you got? You've now got an increase. Because part of that surveillance and, and law enforcement, it also glamorises gangs to a certain extent. And you've got this whole sort of um, commercialisation of gangster culture that gets into the minds of our young people. So there's all those dynamics that are happening. And on the other hand, the other side of the story, of the coin, their observations is an uninformed observation. It conjures up more fear. And so you have this perpetuation that, that at the end of the day, there's no, no end in sight. And um, yeah, it frightens the hell out of me. That is Harry Tam. He is the director of Hard to Reach, which runs the Kahukura program. After the break, we get the police minister's response. And after a week of shootings and gun violence, what more can be done to keep officers and the public safe? Kia ora te Welcome back to Q&A. The decision to fund the Kahukura Drug Rehab Program has been supported by police in Hawke's Bay, but criticised by the Police Association. The Police Minister, Poto Williams, is with us now live from Ōtotahi Christchurch. She is there, I believe. Tēnā koe. Welcome to Q&A. Why should Kahukura get funding? Let's um, be really clear. Uh, meth is a huge problem in our community. Um, and uh, the government wants to fund programs that work t to disrupt the harm from meth. But I do want to say something about that um, interview that I have just seen. For me, gangs peddle meth. Meth destroys our communities. And I would have liked to have seen uh, from that person that you interviewed the fact that gangs are a huge problem in this country in terms of the, the, uh, what they do around peddling meth. And if he really wants to make a difference, he can use his influence to disrupt and dismantle the gangs. It really starts with him. So if gangs peddle meth, why is your government indirectly funding gangs? <laughs> <laughs> 
We are funding a program that has been shown through the pilot to work. We are not funding the gangs. So I want to be really clear about the, that. Yeah, but he's the director of the program that, that, uh, of Kahukura, and he's a lifetime member of the Mongrel Mob. I want to be really clear. Uh, we are funding, through the lead agency, which is the, the Ministry of Health, we are funding a program whose pilot is shown to work to disrupt the harm from meth. Now, for me, we could take a larger look at this and get people like uh, Harry Tam to look at disrupting the gangs by helping to dismantle them. That takes the problem out of our communities because, let's face it, gangs are the ones that peddle meth in our communities and they do meth does major harm. I know this decision has gone to several different agencies. Do you believe the notorious chapter of the mongrel mob is responsible for dealing methamphetamine? I'm sure that gangs are peddling meth. And I'm sure that gangs do, um, uh, do that by recruiting young people who are disadvantaged, who see the bling that is on offer from mm. gangs. Let's be really clear, this is not a passive activity by gangs. They are actively out there looking for uh, young people, um, you know, uh, they're enticing people into gangs. You know, there's the bling that goes along. There's the money that is shown. There is nothing inactive about or passive about gangs' active recruitment of young people. The problem we have is that um, we have to be tough on crime, but we also have to be tough on the drivers of crime. And that is looking at how we support our young people to stay in education, to get employment, get good jobs. If I look to what's happened in the Eastern Bay of Plenty, mm. where the community there said that what the gangs are doing is making a huge impact on our communities, and we want for our young people to have a better way of life. So the community, with the police, with iwi, actually got together and did something about that and tried to keep their young people out of gangs. But more than that, Jack, um, once they are in that lifestyle, we have to find the opportunities to help them exit that because a gang life is not a sustainable life. It's a hard life, mm. and it actually means that we're, we are we're using our young... The but, gangs use our young people to actually continue their mm. business peddling meth. But it's just it's, it's confusing to, 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 to try and digest your message because in one breath you were saying that... that Harry should be more critical of gangs, but at the same time, your government is using the proceeds of crime to fund his mm. programme that indirectly funds the mongrel mob. He himself is a lifetime member of the mongrel mob. Oh, and I'm, look, I, what I'm saying is that I'm trying to be really clear here. We're funding a programme that has been um, proven to have worked the pilot showed 100% compliance mm. around, um, uh, you know, the, the drug use and 80% compliance around court orders. What I'm saying is that Harry has got uh, um, some work to do too to um, get the message out there that the gang life is not what we want for our young people. I think right. the message that he was giving was quite the opposite. It sounded like a recruitment drive for the gangs. Young people see the bling and the lifestyle that the gangs mm. pretend to offer. They get them in there and then, you know, we spend as a government and as a country and as communities an awful lot of our resource trying to so, get them out of the gangs. So was, was it a mistake to give them funding? No, I'm not saying that at okay, all. Okay, but if he, you, think he makes it sound glamorous, you think he makes I'm it sound glamorous, but, 
but you gave him $2.75 million. We didn't fund Harry Tam. We funded the programme Kahukura, whose which lead is agency is the Ministry company. of Health. Yeah. Which is... Um, look, I want to be really clear with you. We are not funding the gangs. We are funding a programme okay. that has been shown to work. Look, okay. I, I, I think gotta, that gotta, there is sorry. an opportunity for us... So, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just, to, I've got to ask you about the shootings this week, and, and I, I know that time goes very quickly. Um, so, so, so we'll put that issue to one side. As you point out, uh, this is a decision, a funding decision that has been made by several agencies, the Department of Social Development, Corrections, uh, and of course the Prime Minister's Office have had some input in this. So we've seen a, a series of high-profile shootings this week, uh, multiple shootings involving police. If the gun buyback had worked, why are we seeing so much gun crime? Well, first and foremost, um, I have to say that, you know, I am hugely grateful for the work of the police. They put themselves out there on the front line every day to keep mm. themselves safe, keep us safe. And it's our job, really, to support them to go home to their families every day. So the last few weeks and days have been very distressing for everybody concerned. Um, and it's never, it's never great when um, uh, police are in harm's way. Let's be clear. And, and yep, I'm yep. grateful for the work that they do. What I um, want to say is, Jack, we took 60,000 military-style semi-automatic weapons out of the, out of the community Think about that for a minute. There were 60,000 military-style semi-automatics in the community, and we not only took them out of the community, but so, they are never going to be used so to harm people. So why are we people. seeing so much gun crime? What we, what we need to do now is continue with the arms register reform. What we need to get a good handle on is how many weapons are in our community. And by registering those weapons, mm. we have a better handle. So police will know when they go to an incident what they are facing. So that, so, but can sorry, I just that be really... No, no that, just doesn't, that doesn't address my central question, though. If the gun buyback had worked and the gun buyback was introduced to try and reduce gun crime in New Zealand, if that had worked, why are we seeing so much gun crime? I have to just correct you. We took the military-style uh, um, uh, semi-automatics, the ones that were used, um, mm. the type of weapon that was used during March 15. Th those are the we weapons that we took out of the community. We want to be really clear that um, uh, about what happens to get guns into the hands of criminals in the first place. Now, if you think about that, how does that occur? That occurs in two ways. Um, either licensed dealers are selling firearms to people who are then passing them on to gangs, or um, legitimate firearms owners are having their weapons stolen from them. So what we want to do is to actually make sure that our dealers are properly licensed and only um, right. providing the weapons to those that they, sh mm. they should be. So we need to have the register to ensure that we've got people who are fit and proper to um, own weapons. And we need to encourage our legitimate firearms owners to secure okay. their weapons it, properly. It doesn't, it where this has happened in the Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Again, we're running out of time. Other... Who, who, who is responsible for decisions when it comes to general arming of the police? Uh, that will be uh, dependent on situations. For the general uh, oh, arming. General for, arming of yeah. the police. Oh, no, general arming of the police. I don't think our community um, so supports who, general who, arming of the police. I certainly decision? don't. 
general arming, are you talking um, Whose decision about is it when whether or not to, to arm New Zealand police? Routinely arm New Zealand that's police? A, that's, a, that's a discussion for the community. And when uh, we've had um, uh, the recent pilot around um, the armed um, response um, tactical units that, that happened um, a couple of years ago or a year or so ago. Our community was really clear they are not ready for the general arming of the police. Our police um, uh, police by consent of their community and the relationship that the police have with the community is very important, Jack, and maintaining that there will be a different dy dynamic if we arm our police generally. And what I want to say is there are if, how we train police, how we resource them, the work that the Commissioner has put in place around frontline safety improvement programmes help our police to be uh, more confident in, in their roles. There's more that we can do, and I'm, I'm speaking with the Commissioner about that all the time, about okay. keeping our people safe. To because be clear, the though, last thing that I want is more shootings. Is, is like for, we've seen this week. Uh, yeah, so, so would you as, as Minister, just to be really clear, would you as Minister ever support the routine arming of, of frontline New Zealand police? No, I would not. Okay. There are okay. opportunities for us to do things in other ways. Okay. Police have access to weapons, um, they have access to training, yeah. but no, I, I do not as a principal. Okay. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Sorry we're so speedy through all of that, but we really appreciate it. That is Police Minister Portal Williams. Thanks, Jack. After the break, Massey's en masse. As some farmers show their frustrations, mayors of two different regions share the sentiment from their communities. Look, I know that change isn't easy. And sometimes we've just got to admit it's necessary. I know what change feels like when it's done to you, and that's not the person I want to be to anyone else. We need to walk forward together. All New Zealanders benefit when all councils act in the collective interests and in partnership with central government, iwi and mana whenua, on behalf of our communities. That was Local Government Minister Nanaima Huta striking a conciliatory tone with mayors at the Local Government Conference in Blenheim on Friday. Two of the local mayors who were there listening are with me now. Campbell Barry, who's the Mayor of Lower Hutt City, and, and Tim Cadogan, the Mayor of Central Otago District. Kia ora kōrua. thanks for being with us. Tim, I'll start with you. $2.5 billion in central government funding to support the Three Waters reforms. After everything you heard this week, where do you stand? Still need to think, still need to communicate with the community, still need to come to a decision. We're starting to get more of the picture. We're not there yet where I can say we're in, we're out, or what my community thinks. What do you need to see to make that decision then? Some clarification. The stuff we've got at the moment is incredibly complicated. I've read through it a couple of times. I struggle to understand it. We're getting some independent consultants to help with that, and that's where we'll be able to start to really see what difference it makes. It's important to keep in mind there's no status quo here. So we need to know what the options are moving forward either way. Campbell, where do you stand? Yeah, and I think Tim makes a good point of each council needing to go through that detail. But what is really clear is that the status quo simply isn't an option. For us in Lower Hutt and the Wellington region, we face a trifecta of issues. As an example, we've got significant underinvestment over decades. We've got that same infrastructure which is coming to the end of its life. Uh, and we're experiencing significant growth. So uh, we need to change the way we do things to make sure our water is healthy for our people and for our environment. Do you feel like sentiment has shifted this week? 
I think there's still a lot of questions obviously being asked, um, but what I would say and what I would remind people is that these reforms have come from what happened in Havelock North, where we've seen four people pass away due to unclean water. Mm. We've seen 35 people hospitalised and we've seen a third of that community made sick. Uh, you know, that is why the government is going on this reform program. And simply, you know, if you look up and down from the top of the North Island to the bottom of the South, there is challenges right across the board in different districts, different cities, uh, and, and we need to do something different. How many councils do you need to get on board for this to fly? The Minister says all of them, which makes it really uh, quite interesting because I don't believe all of them will. Certainly the mood in the room yesterday wouldn't indicate that all of them will. We've had Whangarei say they're out at the moment. Mm. so. That does lead to some further interesting questions. Yeah, what are your colleagues saying? You say the mood of the room suggests that there are still a lot of councils that aren't on board. Hard to quantify. Certainly, there is there is a number that aren't on the board at the moment who are who are saying they perhaps don't think they ever will be, that there's nothing in it for them, and so forth. So there's still a lot of work to be done for them to, well, for all of us to get a clear understanding. And that's why I'm not saying at the moment where I stand, I'm surprised that that some feel they're in a position that they can make those yeah, calls. So, I mean, the government is being, is, like you say, Nanaima Mahuta has said she wants all councils to be on board with these changes. But do you think that in order for that to be the case, they will have to consider some sort of mandate? I think mandation is the last thing the government wants to do. I suspect it's the last thing they will do as well, because we do need some form of reform. This is the reform that's on the table. It's been worked through. We either The government either goes, oh, well, that didn't work and mm. stops and starts another three-year process. I don't think that's going to happen. So mandation to me is a, is a very real possibility and a very real reason for getting a very clear understanding of what's ahead of us. How important is Auckland in all of this? Oh, incredibly important, especially with Entity A in, the, in Auckland and the top of the North Island. And uh, we just actually came from the local government conference where we mm. spent two days in Blenheim. And uh, the Auckland Council got a, an excellence award for their response to COVID-19 and the quarantine and, and obviously being the gateway to New Zealand. And Mayor Goff said there that you know it was Auckland's role uh, to look after the well-being of all of New Zealand. And I think it's really important that Auckland Council and Christchurch and other particularly mm. larger urbans, which are crucial to these reforms if it's going to work, uh, actually think about uh, all of New Zealand in this because we need to make sure uh, that water is healthy for people and the environment across everywhere. But, but at the moment, like ratepayers in Auckland will say, well, hang on, I'm paying a premium as it is to live in, in a city like Auckland, a, a very expensive place to live compared to some other rural parts of New Zealand or smaller towns. Why should I have to prop up those smaller councils up north? See, when you actually look at the numbers, and this is why it's really important, I think, for everyone to get their head around what they say, even in Auckland's case, they are better off down the track with, with under these reforms. I mean, that's, that is what the evidence is telling us. So I think it's really important that we have, uh, you know, we stick to the facts with this, with this conversation. And even for Auckland, you know, I would say also uh, Aucklanders don't live within their city council uh, boundaries. Uh, they go other parts of the country, and I think they also would think that they want to be able to turn the tap on and ensure that the water's clean wherever they go. Mm. Give, us, um, give us the mood in the room uh, amongst your fellow mayors when it comes to those broader moves around centralisation. Obviously there has been some tension between central government and local government over the last couple of years. Is there a sense that, um, that, that there is tension there? You've got 67 big egos with the mayors in the room, so it varies. So some are sitting back going, let's wait and see, let's get the full data. Some are making some fairly big, big statements and, and some are really angry. 
But the angry, angry ones I, I can't really relate to because, as, as Campbell and I both said, the status quo is gone. Havelock North stopped that. Mm. So we've got to go on with something. Um, people who get themselves into trenches, it's hard to communicate with them. Why are people angry? I think there's a lot of reform in the local government sector mm. at the moment. So we're not just facing this, we're facing RMA. We're facing any number of things. The future for local government is going to be different. We're having a, the first review in 30 years. And change brings fear and fear brings anger, and so we're getting a bit of that too. Who, who, how should the balance of power shift through those reforms? Do you, think, do you think councils at the moment have too much power, too little power, or is it about right? Well, we've got all of it at the moment in the sense that the minister, we're only talking drinking water in this conversation, mm, mm. but we've got to think wastewater and stormwater as well. But if we look at drinking water, where this all started, the Ministry of Health has never prosecuted. We've had no... No one with a stick behind us saying, you're going to get this sorted, and that's part of the reason that we haven't. So moving forward now, with Tamata Atawai being established, mm. there is a very big stick there, and there needs to be, so that people have safe drinking water. And with that coming at us, we need to, we need to move in some direction. But around, with those other local government reforms, is there a sense that Wellington is overstepping its authority? I think in an ideal world we'd have a situation where we looked at the future of, of government in, in New Zealand generally, not just local government mm. but the role of central government as well. And uh, the reality is we had Havelock North and these water reforms have moved quicker. Uh, but I think there does need to be a conversation around what is the role locally, what is the role regionally and what is the role nationally. And I would say there are some functions that are currently done locally that should be done elsewhere and uh, vice versa, things that are done nationally that could be done better locally. So that's going to be really important and I think there is a genuine commitment from the, the government to, to take a look at that. At what point will you both be able to have a firm position when it comes to the Three Waters reforms? <laughs> so I, I know over the next few months is going to be quite key to um, you know, socialise this information with our respective councils. Uh, what is very clear is there is a, a varying level of knowledge of, of what this actually means and, and each council is going to need to take their own advice. One thing I would say from the package, which I think was quite promising, uh, was $500 million, which ensures that no council was worth, worse off, and that's uncapped. Because you will have some councils out there who have done a better job than others in recent times in investing in their infrastructure, uh, and they should be acknowledged for that, because they shouldn't be loaded up um, with their debt if, with these reforms coming along. So mm -hmm. all of those things, I think, are on the table and, and need to be talked through. I was interested in your, in your um, respective perspectives on the farmers' protest on Friday and Tim perhaps we can start with you. Did, did that reflect a broad sentiment in your community? Yeah and I think the farmers are reflecting what I just talked about that there's a lot of change. There's a hell of a lot of change in the rural landscape and so that's creating again fear. Uncertainty creates fear then this, that's came, that came out on, um, on Friday. We saw a lot of anger and of course no disrespect to the media that's what's going to get focused on but, but the anger is generated by the fear of what, what's it going to look like farming tomorrow for my children, the next generation and so forth. It's working through the changes recognising I think that the, we've got a majority government that's driving these changes and so the parties need to keep talking. The farmers have made some good noise on Friday that certainly won't be ignored mm. but the dialogue still has to be open for how these changes can be best managed to work for the whole of the country. It's interesting to, to consider you at the conference on Friday and all of the, the mayors and local councils around the country being represented there and what can seem at times like a divide between urban centres and rural, rural centres or rural councils when it comes to the Three Waters reforms. How do we avoid having a similar binary divide when it comes to some of those other changes? 
We just can't. It's a better understanding of both parties. And I've been on farms since I've been mayor, and I've learned a lot. I'm not a farmer, but I've learned a lot since I've been on farms. They're some of the best conservationists in our country. They care about the land that they're on, mostly. There are some that don't, and again, they're the ones that we read about in the paper when they discharge or they do things wrong. So I think for the farmers, it's telling that good story, but also messaging to the ones who aren't quite up to speed, hey, that's not... That's just, that's just ruining it for everybody. Mm. So they need to get on board with, with that a bit more. But the rural-urban divide is really unhelpful. It's both sides learning. And as the farmer said, you don't eat without farmers, mm. even if you're a vegetarian. <laughs> Campbell, what did you think? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that divide or that rural-urban um, conflict, which often is beaten up a bit, uh, is really unhelpful. Mm. Uh, what I think we need to look at is long-term, bigger picture, what is going to be the best thing for New Zealand when it comes to, for example, our exports? Where can we add value? Uh, there is a, a, a rising expectation from consumers uh, in New Zealand, but we can do a better job of that. I think, Jack, you've mm. made some comments about that recently, and I totally agree with you. Um, but internationally, uh, there, are, there is an expectation that things are, are growing or made in a sustainable way, and there's actually opportunities there to get some pretty good economic outcomes for us as a country. And I think that story needs to be shared a bit more, and how can we support each other to make sure we get those, those outcomes. We really appreciate both of your perspectives and the effort it took to get you here in the studio given all of the wild weather in the central parts of Aotearoa at the moment. Thank you so much. Pleasure Thanks, Jack. Jack. Thanks. After the break on Q&A, the UK is set to throw away COVID restrictions tomorrow for what Boris Johnson calls Freedom Day. But epidemiologists are not on board. This rhetoric of living with the virus and allowing high levels of transmission, it's simply not possible. Everyone has to, at this point in time, admit that elimination is the only way forward. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. In a few hours, England will discard its last remaining COVID-19 restrictions for what Prime Minister Boris Johnson has labelled Freedom Day. Some scientists say it's a disastrous idea. Epidemiologist Dr Deepdi Gurdasani published in medical journal The Lancet this week calling on Boris Johnson to hold off lifting restrictions. I asked her what she thinks of Freedom Day. I'm extremely concerned about it. I'm really actually concerned even about the situation now before we reopen on Monday. Um, we are in the middle of what is a crisis here. We're having more than 50,000 cases daily. Our hospitalizations have gone up and only about our half of our population are fully vaccinated. And we're being told that we're going to very likely have millions of cases over the coming weeks. And our cases will reach a height of 100,000 cases per day. Talk to us a little bit more about your concerns with regards young people contracting long COVID. Because of course, from what we know about COVID-19 at the moment, Young people can contract the virus, but generally speaking, the effects aren't as serious as they can be for older people. Yes, I mean, long COVID is something that's been completely dismissed, I think, from our policy and not considered at all, which is really, really worrying. We know that about 10% of even, even young people go on to develop symptoms for 12 weeks or, no, or more. And we know that a significant number of these will have symptoms for six months or one year or longer. So currently we have about 33,000 children who are living with long COVID. And of those, 9,000 have had symptoms for more than a year. So for them, this is not the flu. This is a disease that's debilitating. And we know that SARS-CoV-2 is not a virus that just affects the lungs. We know that even in young people, uh, it can affect multiple organs, including the kidney, the heart, the lung, 
And uh, in young adults, we know it can even affect the brain. So we need to be very, very cautious about exposing our children to mass infection, which is what's going to happen in the UK right now, uh, particularly when we have safe and effective vaccines available. It makes absolutely no sense for our government to be going for this strategy of sort of hybrid herd immunity, half through vaccination, and in our young people through mass infection when they could be vaccinated in the coming weeks. Why is your government pursuing Freedom Day? I think that's a huge question, and I think I really don't understand it. I mean, it's certainly not based on any of the evidence. There's a scientific consensus on this. I mean, we had more than 1,000 scientists and healthcare professionals sign a letter asking the government to urgently reconsider and protect our public. Um, and, you know, we had a world summit, an emergency summit uh, on Friday, where we had international experts condemn this strategy as murderous and unethical. So it's curious to see the government going ahead with this, particularly because it's not even in line with public sentiment. 70% of our public want to continue wearing masks after July 19th. Uh, and many people are very concerned about what's happening in the UK right now. It seems to me that this decision has been made on ideological rather than public health grounds. And I'm not very clear who the government is listening to at this point in time. I mean, Britain has a much higher vaccination rate than countries like New Zealand. So when can countries like Britain, where vaccines have been available for adults for a long time now, fully drop their COVID-19 restrictions? So I think it can't just be based on vaccination. Uh, we know, for example, Israel, which has had a much higher rate of vaccination, um, full vaccination in their population. Um, and they've been very, very cautious about reopening. So they had mandatory masks indoors and outdoors until recently and very good mitigations in schools. And even they, when the Delta range entered their country, have seen outbreaks now, including in vaccinated people, and have reintroduced mitigations, uh, including masks in indoor environments and schools, and are rushing to now vaccinate their adolescents, where a lot of the spread is happening. And I think we have to keep that in mind. Vaccines are not the only way out of this. And I think, one, we need to vaccinate many, many more people than we have. So I think two doses need to be offered to all eligible people, including adolescents. But even if we vaccinate all of those people, it's very likely we're still going to continue to see transmission simply because we have a highly transmissible variant that also shows a level of escape against vaccines when it comes to infection and transmission. And that means that we need mitigation. So we need to actually start investing in ventilation in schools and workplaces in the longer term and in indoor environments, bring back marketing mandates, um, and really improve our surveillance, test rates, and isolate systems, bring community transmission right down and keep it down. I think we need a multi-pronged strategy, not a single vaccine-based one. The virus continues to mutate. Have, have rich and developed countries where vaccines are available effectively shot themselves in the foot by prioritising their own vaccinations? over trying to slow the virus in poorer, high-density countries? I mean, absolutely. No country is safe until all countries are safe. We know that. And unless there is a global response to the pandemic, you know, be it elimination or vaccination or ideally both, um, we're all going to be tr in trouble. I mean, what we've seen from the beginning of this pandemic is every few months there's a new variant that appears to evolve that is either more transmissible or more severe or both or and now even more able to escape vaccines and this is a huge gamble and threat and a lot of people have treated this as inevitable but it's not inevitable this virus evolves when it's allowed to transmit and if we really stop transmission like we have uh, or limit transmission like we have in many elimination zones 
it won't evolve. And it's the only way to actually protect our vaccine resources and keep ahead of the virus. But there needs to be global equity in this. I mean, we know that most countries that are seeing huge surges right now have the majority of their population not vaccinated at this point in time. Mm. And it's very easy for a new variant to evolve. But, you know, it's possible even in the UK, where high transmission is continuing alongside a partially vaccinated population, which actually provides the most fertile conditions for virus adaptation towards escape. And were a variant to evolve that's able to escape vaccines even more, it would have huge impacts, not just for the UK strategy, but globally. Here in New Zealand, we've pursued an elimination strategy and we have no COVID-19 transmission in the community at the moment. Uh, our borders are effectively closed at the moment, but the majority of the adult population should be vaccinated by the end of this year. And there's debate about what we should do with our border restrictions. What would be your advice to New Zealand? I think it's a very, very difficult question to answer because our current evidence, and I think the consensus uh, among scientists suggests that even if you vaccinate 100% of your population, which is not going to happen, obviously, because there will be limitations of eligibility and uptake, you're unlikely to reach herd immunity, by which I mean you're unlikely to reach a point in time that if you lift all restrictions, there's not going to be transmission. There will very likely be transmission, which means that even elimination zones will have to keep uh, other mitigations in place if they are to open up fully. I think the best strategy here is a globally coordinated um, response, which is elimination so that we can build green corridors with countries that have also eliminated the virus. I don't honestly see how we can live with this virus and stay ahead of virus adaptation if many countries continue this rhetoric of living with the virus and allowing high levels of transmission. It's simply not possible. Everyone has to at this point in time, admit that elimination is the only way forward. And we need to coordinate on this globally, which means sharing resources, including vaccines, with countries that don't have them and supporting them with elimination in whatever way possible. After the break on Q&A, days from the start of the Olympic Games, how do people in Japan feel about Olympic visitors importing the virus? Kia ora koutou, welcome back. While thousands of New Zealanders have come home, many others are still doing it tough in countries grappling with another surge of COVID-19. As she did back in March, Q&A reporter Fina Owen has once again been checking in with Kiwis abroad in Uganda, where the situation is dire, in Japan, where COVID infections have hit a high, and in Taiwan, where a Kiwi expat has a salutary message. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jeff Walker um, from the Wire Rapper in, in New Zealand, and at the moment I'm living in Gulu, northern Uganda. Gulu is is a, is a, um, a marker for Uganda. I mean, we've got one of the highest infection rates now. Two weeks ago, the testing rate for positive was 30% in Gulu, so that's you know that's a very high testing um, positive rate. Now, and people are dying. On Monday, I just buried a friend, a doctor of psychology who we've been working with last year a lot, um, who, who got had COVID and, and it took him a month to pass away. And, you know, it destroyed his lungs. So here it's serious. It's really serious. Countries like Uganda are unable to get vaccines. Um, there's only been one million vaccines, which is enough for 500,000 people in 45 million. Last year, people were dying of starvation. 
you know, literally, and, and the, the effects of the lockdown rather than COVID. Of course, people don't have access to food. They don't have money. You know, like your people, people live day to day. And when your ability to, to earn goes, your ability to eat goes. Kia ora. my name is Wayne Shannon. I'm uh, originally from Tauranga and I own uh, a wine bar in Tokyo, here in Japan. So at the moment I'm closed because of the COVID restrictions. Uh, officially we're not allowed to sell alcohol, so being a, a New Zealand wine bar that makes it a little bit difficult. It, it feels that now that people are starting to lose patience a little bit. You'll see more people not wearing masks out and about a little bit. There's a lot of venues, even though we're not officially allowed to sell alcohol. There are a lot of places that are just ignoring the rules. It's a really, really strange situation over here. The Olympics are not being talked about by so many people. Most of the people that I know, it's, it's just not part of the conversation. It's really, really crazy. Um, you, you'll still see paraphernalia up and around, and, uh, and I, I received some emails sort of saying about get excited, it's coming. But uh, most people are just talking about vaccines, it seems. Hi, I'm Ron Hansen, and I am from Wellington, but currently live in Taichung City, Taiwan, where I'm a publisher and a teacher. As many people know, we've had a really strong run here in Taiwan um, until this recent outbreak. Um, and so suddenly, in a very short space of time, we were um, at around over 500 cases a day. So it was, yeah, that was a, a real jolt. And um, we had to instantly change our entire approach to our life during this pandemic. It is universal mask use. I mean, basically, if you leave the home, you're wearing a mask at all times now. And um, there's compulsory um, scanning of QR codes. Ironically, um, in Taiwan, um, around the world, it's been often younger people who have been a bit more reckless, whereas in Taiwan, it's actually older people who refuse to wear masks, typically, who are, um, who are less likely to comply um, with the regulations. So... Uh, this took off in, a, in an area where there were a lot of older people, and that's partly why there's um, unfortunately a very high death rate in this outbreak. Success, long stretches of success, can set you up for a fall. I hope New Zealand can avoid, you know, doing what we've done, you know, and because we Taiwan has, you know, had an incredible response. But I, I do think that we um, took our eye off the ball for a moment, and it didn't take much, and um, we had a serious outbreak on our hands. But, I mean, it's just really a matter of getting that vaccination rate up. I mean, it's that's what it all comes down to at this stage. We're, you know, that's the only way to close out this thing. Reporter Fina Owen put that together. Kua mutu. That's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. Ngā mihi kia koutou i ngā kairere. Thank you for your contributions and messages. Thanks, as always, to the Q&A team. Hey te rā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.